Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. Welcome to the Scott Radley Show for Hump Day here in the beginning of November. It is stunning to me that we're in November. I say this every month, it seems, but we were just in summer. Summer just happened. We're in November. We're closer to Christmas than to summer. Oh, well, glad you're here. Thrilled you're here. Really excited you're here. Let me tell you why we got coming up on the show. Uh, we're going to be talking a little business, but not the usual kind of business. The uh, rankings of hockey NHL teams valuations came out the other day. Not surprisingly, I think to anyone, the Toronto Maple Leafs still consider the most valuable hockey team on the planet, which is stunning, really. I mean, as a business model, being among the least successful at what you do <laughs> and and driving your fans insane doesn't seem like the recipe to build value. However, it is, it is the Leafs worth billions of dollars, we're told. We're going to talk about that business model. How, how does that work? We'll get into that one. Uh, bottom of the hour, speaking of money, we're going to be a theme for a little bit of today. First hour, anyway. Saw this story, and I just, I was I was blown away by this one. I know because it, it's everywhere now. I know there are people who are whiskey drinkers. I also know there are people who don't want to spend all their money on something ridiculous. Well, a bottle of whiskey a bottle of whiskey just sold for $470,000 Canadian. Why? Well, Davin Kirgamo, who is a guy behind Canadian Whiskey, uh, the website and the magazine, he will be joining us to talk about this. Who in the world, who in their right mind, no matter how much you like whiskey, who, in, who would possibly spend half a million dollars on a bottle of whiskey? And would you even open it if you did spend that kind of money? We'll get to that. Uh, next hour, this is a, um, you know, there's a lot being talked about with education right now. This is a fascinating story, though. It comes from a report in the Toronto Star about grade inflation. Grade inflation. We're going to be talking about that next hour because it appears that students today, there's only one of two things happening. Either students today are so much more intelligent than any student ever before, or the education system is inflating their grades because the number of kids getting 95%, 98% has exploded. Now, are kids that much better? Are they working that much harder? Or have the standards gone down so much that everybody now, everyone is an Ontario scholar? We're going to talk about that. It's a really serious one because there are all kinds of implications for this, not the least of which is universities. How do you, how do you decide what, what, when nothing matters as a grade, when you can't trust anything, how do you admit students? We'll talk about that one. As always, the first segment of the Scott Radley Show is brought to you exclusively by fox40shop.com for sport and for safety. It has to be fox40shop.com. Enter the promo code RADLEY at checkout and you will get 25% off your order. And if you've been having a rough day today, if by, if by some reason today has not been the best day of your life, let me offer you 
just a nugget to tell you that probably you're still doing better than some other people. You know, I don't know if that's going to help. I don't know if comparative thinking, comparing yourself to others, I don't know if that might make you feel better. We're going to try, though. Uh, in Sydney, Australia, uh, the Taronga Zoo, the Sydney's Taronga Zoo, had this offer for people that if you wanted to pay a premium, it was a special guest experience. Everyone's into the experiences these days. If you wanted to pay extra and have this experience, you could watch the sunset over Sydney's Harbor, very famous place. And then you would participate in the roar and snore experience at the Taronga Zoo, where you would be in tents, pop-up tents basically, and nearby in an enclosure close enough to hear them you would be there would be the lions that you would be basically sleeping almost next to the lions but safely protected i mean very very you know securely away from the lions well <laughs> shortly after dawn today the folks who were experiencing roar and snore were woken up by staff who were rather urgently rushing them away Here, here's a quote they came running into the tent area saying, this is a code one. Get out of your tent and run. Come now and leave your belongings behind, one guest told local media as his family left the zoo. Uh, yeah, the, the, the guests all thought this was some kind of drill, only to learn the lions had escaped from their enclosure. <laughs> I mean, we can laugh because nobody was consumed. But this is this is... This is living out real life Jurassic Park. This is the, this is the, I don't know what the worst case scenario would be. I guess if somebody had been eaten, that would be the worst case scenario. But this would be number two on the worst case scenario chart. We are going to have an event where you can sleep near lions, but the lions escape. And the only thing keeping the lions from the people and their fleshy bodies that might be very delicious are some canvas tents. <laughs> I, I'm, I am not in the marketing department for the Taronga Zoo, but I think that maybe this might be the last roar and snore experience that they offer. Just a guess. Just a guess. What a... Well, I suppose if you wanted an experience, you got an experience. I, I guess... I, I, <coughs> excuse me. Mm. I guess that would be the, the thing you would tell your kids someday down the road. It'll be a great story. If this was in the States, guaranteed there'd be a multi-million dollar lawsuit to follow. Would, I don't know if they do that in Australia, but nonetheless, no injuries were reported. Everybody escaped. The lions were rounded up. They're all back in their cage and the world carries on, but heesh. That's why I don't bungee jump or parachute. Not because I'm expecting lions. <laughs> that, that would be quite the bungee jumping experience if lions appeared. No, no. Things go wrong. They're not going to go wrong, though, after this. We're going to take a break. And when we come back, we are going to be chatting about, well, maybe something's going wrong. How the Maple Leafs are the most valuable NHL franchise. Uh, we'll discuss that right after this. Stay with us. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Long time or not, 50, whatever years it is now, 55 years since they last won a Stanley Cup, unbelievable. It hasn't hurt them. 
Sportico, which is a sport business publication, has val- given a valuation to all NHL franchises. Number 10, Detroit Red Wings. They're at $1.12 billion. I won't give you the value of all of them, but number 10, Detroit. Nine, Washington Capitals. Eight, Edmonton Oilers. Seven, Philadelphia Flyers. Six, Los Angeles Kings. That's a little surprising. Five, Boston Bruins. Four, Chicago Blackhawks. Three, Montreal Canadiens. Two, New York Rangers. And number one, the Toronto Maple Leafs, who it is amazing to me, that a team that doesn't succeed at what's in, what its intent is and angers and infuriates and frustrates its customers more than probably any other franchise continues to rise in value. I want to bring in Dr. Michael Narain, uh, Brock University Sport Management Associate Professor, joins us now. Doctor, thank you for this. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Scott. And really quickly, I, I'd be remiss if I didn't say the Melbourne Demons in Australia had a 57-year drought and they won the championship in Australian rules football last year. So anything is possible. And well, the Chicago Cubs did it after 108 years. I'm not going to be alive if the Leafs have to go to 108 (laughs) years. However, uh, this this is a very, I, I know there are reasons, but it really is a strange business model that you could anger your fans, frustrate them to no end, and have no success, and yet you are the most valuable in your field. Well, yeah, I mean, there's, there's a few, uh, you know, there's a few variables at play. I and mean, one of the things that the listeners need to recognize is that the professional sport uh, industry, particularly on the men's side, is set up like a cartel, right? So the Toronto Maple Leafs are the only NHL team in town. They're, they have geographic rights. I mean, we can all recall the Jim Ball Philly days of trying to bring the Coyotes oh, to, yeah. you know, Waterloo. And, and, you know, there was a lot of hoopla around that specifically that that would encroach on the Leafs' territory. Part of the reason that that territory is so luxurious is because, let's be honest, Toronto and the GTA, GTHA, is the economic driver of this province, if not the country, when it comes to the commercial sector. That's where major brands, major you know, it's where finance is set up. Um, and so you've got a lot of major players you know, to start with. But then when you go even further... Why the Leafs are able to, you know, and quite frankly, Scott, they could lose all 82 games in a season and they would still, you know, end up net positive. And part of the reason for that and why if any of the listeners do look at the list, you'll see teams like, I'll I'll use the Ottawa Senators as an example. The Ottawa Senators are near the bottom, but part of the reason for that is because of their inability as a franchise not to win games or championships, but to unlock the additional value of a franchise. And what do I mean by that? It's specifically related to team-related revenue, so sponsorships and marketing um, partnerships with brands, as well as the ability to unlock real estate and additional plays of that nature. And so in the particular case of the Toronto Maple Leafs, Maple Leaf Sports and Entertainment owns Scotiabank Arena, and they own the land in and around that arena. And so when you lease that building to, uh, you know, uh, you've got events, you know, whether it's concert series, you know, uh, Justin Bieber, Taylor Swift, whatever the case may be, you know, they come to town, they're renting out your, that building, you're making revenue when the hockey game or basketball game is not being played. Unlike in Canada, I'm not sure when the last time you were in Canada, when the last time you, you were in Canada, Scott, but... There's not a lot going on out in Canada. I mean, across the street from Canadian Tiger Center, if, uh, if I'm not mistaken, that's what it's called, you, you've, you've got a couple of uh, you know, car dealerships. Like, there's not really a lot of value, and that's why we see teams, some of the teams in the top 10 that you've mentioned, they're in urban, high-density areas, 
with an ability to unlock real estate plays. You've got condominiums. You've got um, you know you've got concerts coming in. So that extra non-sport revenue helps drive the bottom line at the end of the day. You mentioned that they are the only team in town too. There's more than one team in New York, for example. There's more than one team in in Los in the uh, California area. What would be your best guess? And and I, I mean, you haven't done the valuation, but I mean, if another team were to ever set up shop in Toronto, because it's been talked about a lot, or Hamilton, do the Leafs lose half their value because they've now got to share half the market, or is it a a, a small portion of their value they would lose? No, that's a good question. I mean, again, without having done the math, my sense would be it'd be close to a quarter to a third. I mean, what, one of the things that we talk about in the sport industry, because it's such a unique industry and business, is the fact that there's high loyalty and there's high brand equity. And there's significant brand equity in the Toronto Maple Leafs brand and in, in that franchise. You know, I remember the, um, some of the early inclinations of, oh, well, are we going to put a team in Markham? Um, you know, you need to have a building, you need to own your building to truly unlock maximum value from that franchise and from that estate. But at the same time, you know, just because you put another team in Toronto doesn't necessarily mean that everyone is going to walk away and start burning their Leafs jerseys and hmm. don the Markham Waxers or whatever the new incarnation would be. I think at the end of the day, or, or you know, I guess in the case of Hamilton, you know, whatever this Hamilton team would be, I, you know, I think at the end of the day, there is significant equity in the Leafs brand, despite the fact that if there was another game in town, and you know, we see this in Los Angeles, Scott, in, outside of hockey with, with basketball, the Lakers are the premier product and the Clippers are always going to play second fiddle to the Lakers. And even with the new facility that the Clippers are building in Inglewood, California, it's still not going to be at the same level of the Los Angeles Lakers. Mm. And so, you know, it, it's a similar analogy or, or it's certainly analogous that the Leafs, are the Los Angeles Lakers, and despite their woes, they might lose a little bit of fandom to this new property if they were ever to come about, but it still wouldn't overtake them, at least not for a long, long period of time. And, and what would probably do that is if there was sustained winning by that second fiddle. So let's hypothetical, uh, excuse me, the hypothetical would be a new NHL team in Hamilton. You know, if the Hamilton, whatever they were called, the, 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 the high flyers, won the Stanley Cup, you know, seven out of 10 years or, you know, something amazing, you know, that could really draw fandom in the GTHA and truly start to change the narrative. Um, almost in the same way that the Brooklyn Nets started to really eke out market share from the New York Knicks for a few few years there, uh, uh, about a decade ago. Yeah, for a few years. All right, let me throw one more thing at you here. And this one may be crazy, but are the Leafs actually ahead? And I understand what you're talking about with their real estate and with their buildings and with their merchandise and everything. But are the Leafs actually further ahead by not winning? Because the 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 pursuit and the the never quite getting there it always keeps people hanging on. It may frustrate them to no end. But if they ever won a championship, that thing that's built up for so many years may go away for some people. You've now achieved it. Well, what is there left to achieve? I I've often wondered if the Leafs are actually financially better not to win a cup. No, I, I, I would I would definitely disagree. I, I think, and we saw this with the Toronto Raptors in 2019, that you know the brand of We the North did super well, but culminating with that championship, it just maintains this new. It's a new chapter in the storybook, and I think if the Leafs, you know, at some point over the next 
say decade, you know, let's knock on wood. If they do get over this magical hump, they do end up hoisting Lord Stanley's Cup and, and we do have a parade in, in the GTA, you know, I, I think it, it doesn't necessarily hurt their brand. If anything, you know, right now, Maple Leaf Sports Entertainment has the embarrassment of riches situation where they've got partners who want to work with them because they resonate in Toronto. They connect with a large fan base and they're seeing coast to coast to coast. And quite frankly, as crazy as this might sound to the listening audience, I did live in Australia for three years. There are Leafs fans in Australia. I believe it. The Leafs brand permeates worldwide uh, and and connects with hockey fans. And so, you know, if the Leafs were to hoist Lord Stanley's Cup, what you would see is even more brands wanting to jump on that winning mentality, that winning bandwagon. And I think, you know, as much as in business we don't want, at least in the sport business, we don't want to necessarily hang our hat on winning because it's certainly out of our control in the marketing department and in, you know, the front office. At the end of the day, winning does beget winning. And so if the Leafs were to win, the bottom line would inflate in a positive way and it would be net positive, not net negative. Dr. Michael Norain, Brock University Sport Management Professor. Uh, thank you, as always, for this. Really appreciate the time. Oh, uh, Anytime, Sky. I always love chatting sports with you. Well, let us take a break. And when we come back, if you had half a million dollars lying around and a bit of a needing to put a whistle in your palate, a wet your whistle, whatever that phrase is, would you spend all half a million dollars on a bottle of whiskey? Somebody did. <laughs> we'll try and explain this after this. Stay with us. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. If you are consuming food, old, I would suggest, by and large, would not be good. Stuff goes bad, it rots, it makes you sick to your stomach if you would eat it. However, in the drink world, in the, well, in the world of beverages, that may not necessarily be true. And in one particular case... We're learning really not true. The oldest whiskey ever to be auctioned was just sold. Any guesses how much it went for? It was an 81-year-old Macallan sold for four hundred and roughly $470,000 Canadian. Here, here's what they said about it. This is, I'm reading this one. The Macallan The Reach came from a single sherry season oak cask originally laid down during World War II, not long before the distillery had to temporarily close its door for the first time in its history. The liquid was sold in a mouth-blown glass decanter caressed by a a bronze sculpture of three hands. The cabinet used wood from an elm tree believed to have been on the Macallan estate during the year of the Scotch's distilling in 1940. Huh. I mean, sounds impressive. I want to bring in Davin de Kergamo. He is... Um, a author, he's a writer, he's a whiskey sampler, he's written books, he is the founder of the Canadian Whiskey Awards, he's works on Canadian Whiskey website. Uh, Davin, thank you for doing this. Always appreciate you taking some time. My, my pleasure, Scott. Yeah, I like your intro to that uh, whiskey. It's just got everything, but you have to wonder what it tastes like. Well, you know, <laughs> as long as it's served in a mouth-blown glass uh, decanter and it's caressed by a bronze sculpture, it must be delicious. <laughs> You know, uh, I'm a little bit cynical about these. Every year around Christmas time, just before the big rush to buy whiskey comes along, these guys come out with yet another, uh, you know, stunt whiskey to try to, uh, you know, get generate sales for their, you know, their mundane McAllen's uh, uh, or or Bowmore's or whatever. Um, I can't 
honestly imagine how anybody could buy that for the whiskey. It, 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 it's just the idea of owning something that's one of a kind. But, you know, when you think about collector's items, these are usually things that have had some real life and, and that have be, become rare because all the others have been lost. Or, you know, and this is, to me, this is, I call these Franklin Mint whiskeys because they're designed to be collectors. They could have made 100, they could have made 10, they made one. And so it's, it's really outrageous, and they're going to get a lot of press. Uh, we're talking about it right now uh, in Hamilton. Uh, and uh, people will, the only thing people will remember is McCallum. It's worth a lot of money. But, um, you know, when you, if you take, take away all the things other than the whiskey, what you've got there is a liquid, and you can only go so far in exciting people's palates. So this is the idea of saying, I'm so rich, I could buy this one-of-a-kind whiskey. Just so if you, so David, if you had, if you had half a million way. bucks lying around, you wouldn't buy a bottle like this? No, I, I would not spend, uh, <laughs> I, I bet you a buck they could, they could probably convince me to spend maybe 1200 I was going to say 600 but they could, but beyond that, no, it's, it's, it's just not worth it. There are too many absolutely fabulously wonderful whiskeys available for us, you know, in, in the hundreds or, or even less than a hundred dollars. So, so no, I wouldn't spend that kind of money. You know, it's a, it's, it's not for a whiskey drinker. It's for somebody who just wants to be able to say, I have the only one and it yeah. was created to be the only one, but then why not buy a work of art instead? Well, or yeah, I mean, who was who's the uh, the actor? Was it Nicolas Cage or someone bought a, a Tyrannosaurus Rex head? I mean, what well, was a skull? So you know, okay, good, you got it. What are you doing with it now? Um, do you think? Do you believe that it would have been the plan all along for this to have been set in this oak barrel for eighty one years, or do you think someone actually discovered one in the back of the warehouse somewhere that they forgot about and went, oh, because eighty one seems like a weird number to crack it open. 81 seems like a really weird number until you remember that Gordon Fale just released an 80-year-old. So now this one, ah. now, all of a sudden, becomes the oldest. Gordon and Fale did, did, did this 80-year-old. No, it was not set away, put away to be aged for 81 years. It was put away in a barrel that wasn't used. Now, it's not that somebody discovered that barrel, because remember, whiskey is heavily taxed. And the tax man knows every barrel those people have in their warehouses, and so do they. So it's not like, oh, my goodness, did you realize we have an 81-year-old here? No, they, they, they've got that in their inventory. Uh, and uh, it, it, it's just that they have, there was probably the end of a run that, you know, they, they didn't they have one barrel left over, so they just put it aside. But they, they certainly kept track of it. And, uh, you know, now they're saying, well, let, you know, it's Christmas coming. What can we do for a big publicity stunt? I know Gordon and McPhail just put out that 80-year-old. Let's do an 81-year-old, you know. And there's probably some good-natured competition among these people, too. <laughs> Someone's probably got an 82 waiting to come out next year is what you're saying. Oh, uh, <laughs> unquestionably. <laughs> unquestionably, so, yes. Okay, so, Davin, look, I... I... We hear about old whiskey. We hear that it's aged. I mean, aged is a good word in this industry. Does it does it naturally mean that if it's been aged 80 years, it is way better than one that's aged 30 years or 40 years or 10 years? Like, wh at what point, is, is there a point at which the aging process no longer does anything? Uh, 
way, good word, it's way past its prime, way past its prime. Now, it used to be that whiskey, the, the ideal age for Scotch whiskey, and this is Scotch, was about eight years, and people really admired the eight-year-old, maybe eight to 12 years, uh, you know, it was getting up there. But then, you know, people stopped buying whiskey for quite a while, and the whiskey in the warehouses started getting older and older and older and older, and they said, what are we going to do with all this stuff? We can dump it into our blends, but then, you know, we were storing it. Someone said, well, why don't we try to convince people that the older the better? And they started doing that. And some of these old whiskeys do get quite flavorful, but uh, a lot of them just get so woody, it's like, you know, chewing on a log. Um, these really old whiskeys are just not that, uh, not not that 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 much better flavor. They don't taste that much better. Some maturation does continue, but uh, you know it's 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 uh, they're they're well past their prime at that age. It, this is really just to be able to say you know I tasted an old whiskey or I have an old whiskey. And if you want to buy an old whiskey, that's great. Buy Canadian Club Forty Five Year Old. You know, it cost you 500 bucks, and it's uh, it's probably, I haven't tasted that Macallan. It probably tastes twice as good as the Macallan because it's it's matured in barrels that, that, that uh, already had a lot of the, um, of the flavor soaked out of the wood, so it matured slowly through a process of oxidation in the barrel, and these slowly matured whiskeys that are in, in wood that uh, is not that active can really be quite quite amazing but does it, these old scotches i uh, i really can't i really can't imagine any reason to do that other than to generate a telephone mm. does it matter though davin does it matter does it matter what this tastes like because I, there's just there's a part of me that says there is no possible way that whoever bought this is ever going to open this bottle because if you do you then have to consume it it doesn't last forever I can't imagine that anybody would crack open a half million dollar bottle of booze. I just can't. So in other words, it doesn't matter what it tastes like. As you say, it's just to have it. Yeah, I agree with you on that. However, I was in Taiwan with my son about uh, 10 or 15 years ago. They had a bottle that they had in a bar. We went into a bar and uh, I had a bit of a reputation as a whiskey writer in Taiwan. We went to this bar, the... They pulled out a bottle. It was a Janet Sheed Roberts Glenfiddich, which they had paid about $65,000 for, and they were about to take the lid off that so Christopher and I could taste it. And I said, please don't open that. I'm not going to enjoy it enough. So we settled for a $500 bottle of Glen Grant, and that really kind of set us up. <laughs> so, uh, you know, <laughs> it, uh, uh, there are people who have so much money that it, it, that's pocket. I guess. I but guess. It, it, I guess. Well, it's um, it, I, I'm sure there are others. If people go on to the LCBO website, there's always one or two every every year that are for eighty, ninety, a hundred thousand dollars. So I mean, you know, it's not five hundred thousand. You're not getting quite there, but you know, if you really have to blow some money, um, I, I suppose there are ways to do it. Uh, Davin DeKergamo, always appreciate having you on here. Thanks for the time today. My pleasure, Scott. Take care. It's uh, if you want to read more about this, by the way, it is called McAllen the Reach. And if you, if you want to live vicariously through people who apparently have more money than, well, I won't say than what, I mean, I would say more money than brains, but you know, some people just have way more money. If you want to live vicariously, you can look that one up. It's uh, it is an interesting one. And you know, you can look at that glass mouth blown bottle caressed by the sculpted hands and blah, 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 blah.
$500,000 for a bottle. Uh-uh. Let's take a break. Back with Tom's story of the day, with Matt's story of the day. Pardon me, with Matt's story of the day, right after this. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Time for Matt's story of the day. Here's how this works. If you're not usually here on this time, at this time, uh, Matt is back at the home office. He is, I'm at the home office. Matt is back at the office office. He is keeping us on the air with the technical work. I am going to give Matt three stories from somewhere around the world unusual stories he will then decide after great thought and great deliberation which one becomes his story of the day feel free to play along you can name it your whatever your name is story of the day and you can text us your choice for which it would be 905-645-3221 send text there with number one number two or number three along with your name when we're done here. All right. Story number one, Matt, we're going to California. Ever been down driving in Los Angeles? I have not. Okay. The 405 freeway, uh, like most of the freeways down there, chaos. Just so many cars. I have heard that. Unbelievable amounts of cars. It's That's just That's the only crazy. thing I've heard about it. We were down there a few years ago. And the other thing about the freeways down there that we did not know that was almost catastrophic is that motorcycles are allowed to pass between the cars on the dividing lines. So we're driving along and I'm trying to change lanes. And thankfully I looked because all of a sudden right between the car, as I was about to switch lanes, I would have wiped the guy out completely. That was a new one. Anyway, the freeways down there, complete chaos, except for, or maybe because of this week when a, well, Saturday night, a man in a wheelchair, not a power wheelchair, just a, a wheelchair was rolling him down one of the lanes in the middle of the highway to get where he was going. It, it slowed things considerably, nearly led to disastrous results. Presumably decided that, you know, it's a vehicle, it's got wheels, I'm allowed to drive on the lanes. So away he went until he was, the California Highway Patrol finally finally got him off the highway, which was a relief because uh, the possibilities for what might have happened were were horrendous. But um, I guess he thought he was, you know, able to keep up, I guess. Story number two comes from London, England. This one, the, the video for this is almost unbelievable. There was a store, it seems, in central London that was trying to get a head start on getting its Christmas decorations up. Only its Christmas decorations involved at least two, maybe more, but we only know about two, enormous Christmas baubles, like round, what do you, you know, the things you would put on a tree, the ornaments, but round silver, giant though, round silver ornaments, like a, a story and a half tall. These things are probably 15 or 17 feet tall. Uh, they're, they were inflated, so thankfully they weren't, in, you know, super heavy, but the Anyway, they got, there was a windstorm in London while they were trying to put up these baubles and they got loose. <laughs> and the video, this looks like a scene from Raiders of the Lost Ark when Indiana Jones is being chased by the ball, but these enormous appearing to be metal balls are rolling down the main streets of London as cars and drivers are swerving out of the way so they don't get run over by these enormous billiard, not billiard, well, billiard balls or pinball machine balls or Raiders balls, whatever you want to call them. Um, nobody was damaged. Nobody was hurt. Again, they were only inflatable, but the visual of this 
as you see what you're looking in your rearview mirror and they have a metallic sheen to them as you see a giant metal ball bearing rolling down on you it would be terrifying no wonder the cars were pulling off yeah i'm just watching the video now too and the one like smashes into a thing but you're but like you said it's just an inflatable thing you're expecting more damage but (laughs) way more damage but nonetheless again if you're looking in your rearview mirror and you just do a double take like whoa what what is that like these were enormous balls that were rolling anyway story number three today i don't understand this story at all i don't understand this story at all kanye west somehow announced on instagram last week that because of his crazy behavior he had lost two billion dollars in a day now here's what i don't understand about this story there's multiple levels to my lack of understanding how in the world is kanye west a billionaire i i that i you know i don't get I know that people say, well, he's a musical genius. No, he's not. He's not. He's not. He's How this guy has that much money says everything we need to know about the sad state of affairs in the world. If Kanye West has a bill as over a billion dollars, and if he lost two and he still got a little bit of money, well, he had a lot. But here, Matt, here is where the story really goes off the rails. There are now fans who have started a GoFundMe page to donate money to Kanye to help him build back up to be a billionaire again. I mean, GoFundMe is usually for people who have gone through a tragedy or, you know, some horrible thing in their life or they're trying to do something good. Here, we're simply trying to get Kanye West back to the level of billionairehood because I guess that's essential. Yeah, I I, I think there was another one with one of the Kardashians where they did the same thing. It was something like that. But yeah, I, I <laughs> they'll shut this down. <laughs> yeah, Forbes, Forbes reported last week, West was no longer on its list of billionaires and now has an estimated worth of only $400 million. So it, they're going to have to do some work on GoFundMe to try and get him up to a billion again. I mean, he's $600, $600 million <laughs> short. That's some work to do. But nonetheless, that, I, I don't understand why you would do this. And I don't understand how Kanye West could have possibly made that much money. But well, I, right. you know, it's we'll, all the clothing and the shoes, but, you know. Well, even then, even then, it's like, okay. Will your story of the day today be the guy in California in his wheelchair who decided that he was, well, he's on wheels, so he can be on the highway, on the freeway. Will it be the giant Christmas decorations? I mean, giant Christmas decorations rolling down the streets of London, creating chaos. Or will it be a GoFundMe for Kanye West to allow him to once again become a billionaire? Well, this is a close one for me because I really did enjoy that video, but uh, of the uh, of the Christmas balls. But I got to go with the wheelchair because that just made me want to know how fast like a normal is it was it a normal wheelchair? Oh yeah, he was okay. just doing it by hand. So okay, yeah, yeah. I, I kind of want to know what the the biggest speed like the uh, fastest non powered wheelchair was. So I, I got to go with that because it, it's given me more to uh, look up. There is your Matt story of the day. When we come back after the news break, grade inflation. If you've got kids, if you are involved with the school system, you're going to want to be here for this one. This is a fascinating story about how it seems kids' marks are going up and up and up these years. But does it mean that kids are getting smarter or that it's just becoming way easier to get high marks? We'll talk about all that after this. Stay with us. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML.
Hour number two of the Scott Radley Show on this Wednesday evening. Thanks for being here. We are thrilled that you are along. Really are. And we have got a, a we're going to be launching into a, I think it's a fascinating topic in just a moment here about grade inflation. Came across this in a really terrific piece in the Toronto Star on the weekend by Janet Hurley, who's a reporter there. I mean, an amazingly interesting piece that raises so many questions. We'll get to that in a second. Your quiz question here first, though. And by the way, this week we have had almost nobody answer the quiz question on Monday. Apparently way too hard. More yesterday. Trying to build on that one still. This is, uh, I don't know if, I, I really don't know if today's quiz question is easy or impossible. I truly don't know. Let me give it a go. On this day in 1947, people, People saw the spruce goose for the first time. What was the spruce goose? It was a thing. And I'll give you a hint. It was not an actual goose. (laughs) On this day in 1947, people got a glimpse of the spruce goose for the first time. What was the spruce goose? 905-645-3221 or star 9900. Those are the numbers to get Matt. You can also text us at 905-645, sorry, nine, yeah, 905-645-3221. Text your first name and the answer to that one, 905-645-3221. What was the spruce goose that in this day in 1947 people saw for the first time? That is your quiz question today. Can't wait to see how many people can figure this one out. As I mentioned a moment ago, there was a really, I think, you know, kudos to uh, Janet Hurley at the Toronto Star. An amazing story, an amazing piece that she wrote that was in the paper on the weekend. The headline was this, an explosion in A-plus students. Grades are rising at GTA high schools. Here's what it means for your kids. Essentially, she is talking and writing about grade inflation. And let me, there's lots in this story, and we're going to get into a lot of it, but I'll give you a just a a taste of this one. This is reading from her piece. And again, this is not speaking of Hamilton. This is speaking of areas around us. In 2007, the grade 12 average at the Toronto District School Board was 74.5%. Last year, it was 81.6. At the Dufferin Peel Catholic District School Board, the average went from 77.4 to 84.8. So it's up by about 8% over the course of a few years. Why is this happening? Is this just that kids are getting smarter? Is something else going on? Paul Bennett is the director and researcher with the Schoolhouse Institute. Uh, Most people consider him the leading educational analyst and, well, person to talk about educational things in this country. He joins us now. Paul, how are you today? Very well, Scott. Nice to be back on your show. Thrilled to have you back. So let's start with the obvious thing, which may be the answer, and this may be a very short conversation, Is there a possibility that nothing is going on here except that kids in school are getting way smarter? That is not the case because there's so much evidence to the contrary. And in fact, if you go back to uh, 2003, 2004, across Ontario, the uh, average um, was um, 68% of students graduated in five years and only 56% graduated in four years. 
what we have now are uh, figures of uh, 86.5% uh, in, uh, in each category, and uh, the percentage increase is 20 points over the last um, 20 years. 20 points as far as more people graduating or as far as yes. averages? Okay, so... So something then, if it's not kids getting smarter, and look, I'm not, I'm not standing here or sitting here suggesting that kids of this generation are all a bunch of idiots. I don't, I'm not suggesting that at all. But it does seem odd that if they're not suddenly, for some reason, getting smarter naturally, and I know, Paul, and I'm sure you did when you were going to school, uh, there were kids in our school who worked very hard to get their grades. I don't, I find it very hard to believe that all of a sudden today every kid is working way harder than we did or that other generations did either. I think that's where the tragedy comes into play here. We have a lot of students that work extremely hard uh, to achieve their standing and uh, some outstanding students. But what's happening is there's a bunching of grades and uh, through social promotion and a variety of other changes that have been made over the last 10 to 15 years, um, more and more students are getting over 90%, and that's a serious problem. Essentially what's happening is we're running out of room to raise marks, particularly at the graduating level. And let me be clear, because in my book, The State of the System, I have a whole chapter on this, and it's, I call it the big disconnect. Uh, great inflation, skyrocketing graduation rates, and little or no improvement in, in student achievement levels measured on objective standards such as international tests or even when they're assessed in universities. For example, um, not too long ago, um, universities in Ontario assessed um, the students and they found that about 35% of the students being admitted to the universities, grant, granted it was in the BA programs, were ill-prepared and unable to, um, they were just simply did not have the requisite academic skills to be in a university program. Now, one would hesitate to say what their averages were, but they would be dramatically above what you would expect. Uh, you're right. Janet Hurley's article is an excellent one because it highlights the skyrocketing numbers of kids that are graduating with marks into the 90s, which disadvantage the top students because everyone's bunched in there. But I think she misses a huge aspect in this article, the disconnect between those incredibly elevated marks and actual achievement levels. There's a whole other aspect of this. And it's not new. Um, I, I go back to uh, 19, or 2007, uh, then Minister of Education Mitzi Hunter had a press conference, and uh, she actually spoke at the Canadian Club in Toronto, and she celebrated the uh, fact that 86.7% of all students in Ontario had, uh, had graduated in the previous year. And, of course, that was, uh, that she said that it was through a relentless focus on moving everyone through. Now, what happened during COVID was something that made it worse. If you go back to uh, March of or April of 2020, a directive came out of the out of Queens Park that said that uh, it would be no student would be disadvantaged as a result of school disruptions. 
all marks would be guaranteed from March. No one could drop from their March marks. And finally, and this is the most important thing, that there would be no final assessments or exams. Now, we know through other jurisdictions, Alberta, Quebec, wherever there are exams, the um, percentages are lower and the rates of graduation are much lower. Let me read another paragraph. Let's put it this way. Uh, The government is culpable. They, it was part of a longer-term strategy of raising graduation rates, and now they've run out of room. <laughs> Students are achieving such high grades that um, they're completely divorced from any level of achievement. Well, and that's the, I want to read another paragraph from her piece. And this, this is the one, this is the paragraph when I read the entire story, and it's a long story. This is the one that really made me think I got to talk about this because this is so outrageous. Here's the paragraph. Where once the pool of students with top marks was shallow, about a quarter of the incoming student body at Ontario's top universities 15 years ago had averages above 90. Let me say that again. About a quarter of the incoming students at Ontario's top universities 15 years ago had averages above 90. Today, nearly three quarters of arriving students boast such achievement. And averages over 95, that pool is huge. Between 2007 and 2021, the number of first-year students entering with a high school average of 95-plus increased by 885% at Western and 700% at Waterloo. Paul, that is that when everything is an apple, nothing is an apple. If you tell everybody that you are a 95% student, it has to mean that there are no such things as 95% students. It's ludicrous. Scott, it's happening again. Remember the Ontario scholarships were set at 80%? I do. It used to be a reasonable yardstick. Um, and But once 70% of the students in the graduating year were getting over 80%, it had to be abandoned. I will go so far as to say on your show tonight that a 90 is equal to an 80 uh, 15 years ago. And I think that's we've got lots of evidence based on the um, the, the um, data that's been produced and excellent digging by Janet Hurley, looking at university data. Um, where the article stops short is um, the recommendations for change are not acceptable to me. First of all, I don't believe in a pass-fail system. I think that will make the situation worse. It will disadvantage the students that are extraordinarily talented and looking to distinguish themselves. I don't know uh, why we don't look at re-examining the evaluation system. It's right now it's peer-referenced percentages in relation to other groups of students in your grade, your school, uh, and that's the basis. I think we need to look at criterion-referenced assessment. In other words, how are students doing against some objective criteria, knowledge and competencies? And we could look to the International Baccalaureate for a seven-point scale where um, very, very few students will ever get a seven, one to seven, very few students, because there's limitations on the percentage of students that can get a seven. And most to get into university, you just need a four out of seven. So there's, a, there's lots of room to adjust the uh, marking standards for university admission. Why not look at the IB standards and see if they can't be converted province-wide? We know that not every student is brilliant at school. Look, I, I, I wish 
I wish that these standards were replaced. My dad was a brilliant man. He was an academic. He did exceedingly well with his brain in his life. I was the kid, one of the ones at my school that did not stand up as an Ontario scholar when I graduated. That nearly drove him crazy that I wasn't following in those footsteps of his. I wish it was. But we know that not every kid is equal. Not every kid is brilliant. Other kids have, and it doesn't mean you're a moron. It means you may have different <laughs> skills. But Paul, if, if, if we had, if we're grading kids and a teacher had 90% of his or her class at 55%, people would freak out that that teacher was doing something wrong. But we don't seem to have any question about why they're all at 95%. That there, we seem to have abandoned the idea that people may not all be equal achievers. There's a bigger problem, and when you look school to school, the um, schools with the highest percentage graduation rates are not always the strongest academic schools. In fact, um, most of the universities that have selective programs now kind of rate the high schools, and they know where, for example, they know what a an 85% from a certain school might be worth in term in relation to other schools. And I see that is going to increase as a result of this because universities just have to find another basis, a more reliable one with credibility to evaluate what kind of students they are when they are applying for universities and colleges. There is a university professor, an emeritus university professor now, and I'm forgetting his name. You may even know it. Uh, he worked at Western. And he was very critical of the university system. And we've had him on this show. Um, I say, I'm forgetting his name right now. I apologize. Uh, but was it, would it be James Cote? No, although he also uh, at Western. No, this was a, a gentleman from the West Indies, I believe, originally. And uh, uh, anyway. Alahar. Thank you. Anton Alahar. Yes. Yes, and we've had him on the show, and he has said he has had students that have come into his university who have come in with exceedingly high marks. They have been wildly successful, seemingly, at their high school, and they get to university, and they're completely flustered and bamboozled and have no ability to do the stuff that they're being asked to do, and they're expecting that somehow that this is... that, that university is supposed to be more to them than them to university. He, he says he can't, uh, I mean, he's been on the show, as I say before, and says, we've had parents calling me up, asking me what's going wrong because my kid never got less than a 90 and now they're struggling. Well, if we're doing this at high school by inflating grades, are we not setting kids up for failure? Because when, as you've touched on, when you then get to a university where a professor doesn't really care about what you did in high school and simply has a standard, are we not setting kids up to fail in that situation? Unfortunately, we have a situation cropping up in the universities where we know from studies, one out of York University in 2021, indicating that uh, professors are exasperated and they themselves are kind of giving up and accepting that they'll have to, uh, they'll actually have to move students along. So, you know, this kind of erosion of the credibility of grades and the meaning of, of assessments is corrosive, and uh, it seems to be um, moving into the universities. Certainly, a York University study uh, with four other universities supported everything you've said about um, just what students are like in first year. 
And um, yes, uh, they were all undergraduate universities offering offering uh, BAs, and I think um, they were the some of the best known universities in Ontario. All the professors had the same conclusions, and they really did support what Professor Alahar told you. And even just this year, it was at uh, was it New York University where there was a professor who. A whole series of students complained that his course was too hard. He says he's never changed his level, but he was let go by the university because his course was deemed too hard by incoming students. That is now when you start getting into something that is truly troubling. If now the students who have been set up for failure by being told all along, you are brilliant, you are one of the elite, and you go somewhere where they don't give you the same benefit of the doubt, and now you don't succeed, and yet then the next level of school says, well, the customer is always right. Therefore, rather than telling you work harder or do better, we will get rid of the person who's hurting your sense of self-esteem. The whole thing just is crazy. It's actually more common than you realize in education. Look, I put uh, 35 years into education and I um, had to relax my standards. And I'm known as someone that expected a lot of students. But even I was influenced by those changes. And, um, you know, to some degree it was beneficial to students. I certainly got along better with students. I wasn't quite as demanding. But, you know, um, but I still did maintain standards. And I think it's very tough for teachers and professors these days who adhere to some reasonable standards and aren't willing to compromise their values. And I think that's what the issue is, and it's being played out in universities. I'm afraid that high school teachers have kind of uh, accepted the reality, which is that most, almost all students are going to be moved on. The government's uh, approach is a relentless pursuit of what they call student success, which in many schools means almost everyone passes, and we now know a lot get over 90%. Is this all about preserving self-esteem? Because, I mean, look, we talk in schools all the time. You can't bully someone. This is not bullying, but we, we, can't, we don't want someone's self-esteem to be injured by that. We don't want to have anything that would injure someone's ability to be in a safe space or be comfortable. Does that now extend to grading? To some degree, but what I found interesting in the Toronto District School Board data that was released a year ago uh, was that uh, in grade nine, uh, the marks were more solid. They were less inflated. And the higher you went, the more inflated the marks got. It has more to do with uh, the pressure to get into extremely selective university programs where there are high cutoff marks. And, that's, uh, and also students are choosing um, their own subjects and dropping subjects they find difficult, like mathematics or science. And so their marks tend to ride up. So I would say that it's a combination of factors. But I'm one of those who's always been arguing that the fewer exams you have, the higher the marks are going to be. And um, if you say if you reduce the requirement that they study math um, longer in high school, you'll find the marks go up. We know from Alberta that uh, as soon as uh, graduation exams went from 50% to 30%, the graduating averages rose by 1% a year. That was 9% over a 10-year period. And Alberta, which had the uh, uh, University of Alberta, which was strenuous and expected a lot of students, they basically had to give ground. 
and uh, Alberta students started to have more inflated marks on graduation. I mean, tell me I'm wrong, but if a school board announced they've now read this piece, it's come to their attention, they're going to look into this. If they were to announce, we are going to be marking harder, we're announcing ahead of time that starting next year, we are going to more stringent levels. I don't believe that any school board would truly hold their ground on that one because the number of parents and students who would freak out and scream and yell and make a fuss would eventually make them just say it's not worth it. Taking a position like that would be self-destructive. This is a provincial challenge. And the province got the high schools and universities into this situation by focusing so much on pushing the kids through and raising the graduation levels and standards. They have to find a way out of it. They, they should be thinking, I'll put it out again. They need to rethink the evaluation system on graduation, not pass-fail, but some other criteria like IB, seven-point scale, where limited numbers are ever going to get a seven out of uh, in the seven-point scale. A couple more things. I mean, one of those problems would be that teachers are also criticized if not enough kids do well. Do we need to lose that assessment tool that says, look, a teacher may have a class just because everyone's different. A teacher may have a class where only 50% of kids go to university. That's not necessarily the fault of the teacher. The fairest and most reliable assessment is not what most teachers think. That is a standardized test or an examination. It's less biased, it's more objective, and it's actually fairer to those kids who are disadvantaged, believe it or not. So therefore, um, if you really believe in, in this, we need to have more, um, I would say, standardized assessments or uh, examinations so that we can actually um, right the balance here. Because that's the only thing that's going to restore a credibility to the existing grades. But what about, sorry, you just said something that caught me off guard because always the argument has been one of the reasons people don't like standardized tests is because disadvantaged kids, kids who are first generation Canadians who maybe don't speak the language, who don't have a computer at home, that this would be negative to them, this would hold them back. Wouldn't that do that? No, the research doesn't show that. I, I know that uh, teachers, um, you know, a lot of anecdotal evidence. The research cuts in the other direction. It's actually... Uh, it's actually the fairest form of assessment, uh, which is some standardized assessment, whether that be an examination or even a standardized assessment. It's a level playing field. Everyone is treated the same. The instruments are, are essentially comparable. And um, there's, there's a lot, no teacher bias. You know, teacher bias creeps into teacher-driven assessments. It's a big issue in the UK uh, where Dylan William and uh, Daisy Christodoulou are the leading experts on um, assessment, and they both insist that, uh, you know, examinations properly constructed and standardized assessments are fair overall because there's a level playing field for everyone. Now, there are biases in some of those instruments, but that can be adjusted and corrected. Just before I let you go, I want to read you uh, the last line of this piece. And again, I would encourage everybody to go and look it up. It's by Janet Hurley. The headline is an explosion in A-plus students. Grades are rising at GTA high schools. Here's what it means for your kids. The last line is a quote by a kid who was talked about in the story. Um, here it is. Grades are not a measure of intelligence. You have to realize that you ha just have to be a good person 
And when going through high school, be passionate, be involved, help others. These are the things that should define your high school experience, not grades. Look, uh, God bless the kid for being a nice person. But if this is also the attitude of a number of people who are in the schools as students even, we got problems. If the, if this is now where we're saying, well, just, you know, just be nice and don't worry because the grades will take care of themselves. Th- that is that is a deep-rooted problem. Well, it's also a bit naive because we're in a global marketplace. Um, everyone is judged on the basis of bigger standards. And whether you like it or not, you are going to have to measure up to standards at some point in your life whether it's uh, in university or uh, in the workplace. So that kind of uh, attitude, I don't think, helps you in the long run. It may get you through, uh, through a, a, a system where it's based on social promotion, which is what he's kind of comfortable with. But I don't think it really serves you well in life. It's not the way to become a productive, effective, and contributing citizen either. No, I mean, he sounds like a lovely person, just as you say, a little naive. And, and if this is if this is how students are now seeing the system, well, everyone gets good marks, doesn't really matter. So just be nice and separate yourself that way. Well, if even the students understand that the game is being played the way it seems to be being played, then I, I think we've lost. Anyway, uh, Bruce, uh, Paul, sorry, pardon me, Paul Bennett, reading something else. Uh, Paul Bennett from Schoolhouse Institute. Always appreciate having you on here. Thanks for doing this today. My pleasure. Uh, once again, I would just tell people if you are interested in this stuff, especially if you have kids at school, go look this one up. An explosion in A plus students is the name of the is the headline on it. It is really, really fascinating and troubling, but really, really fascinating. Especially as I say, um, when you compare it to where you may have been once upon a time in your life. I know that, like I, I. I I did not apply myself in high school. I didn't. And I know that now. And I look back and I say, I know I could have done more. I know I could have done more. But here's the thing. My grades, due to my lack of application, reflected that. I didn't have a 90 average. I'm not going to medical school. I didn't didn't put in the work. I know that. I didn't get the benefit for putting in the work that I didn't do. But today based on what Paul's saying, based on this story, a lot of people aren't putting in the same work that once upon a time you would have had to, to get 90 or 95. And yet the stats seem to show that those grades are being given out all over the place. And I go back to my point. If nothing is an apple, everything's an apple. If if everything's an apple, nothing is an apple. If everybody is a 90% student, then 90% doesn't mean anything anymore. 90% or 95% only is special if it, ex- if, it, if it separates you from the crowd because you're one of the very elite. If you get 95, but 15 other people in your class get 95, what does that mean? It doesn't, it's, it's nothing. In our school, when I was going through school, and probably you too, there were one or two in our class who would have got that, maybe three. The real, the ones who were exceptional. This, this it, it's just, it's a, it's a discouraging thing to think that we've gotten to this point where, for whatever reason, and there are lots of them, 
that great grades don't seem to matter much or mean much. They matter because people are getting in university, but they don't necessarily mean as much. Anyway, gotta take a break. Back after this, stay with us. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Okay, so I like to read. I hope you like to read. It's good for you. It's healthy. It helps your brain. I did not know that there was a prize called the Diagram Prize. The Diagram Prize. It's got nothing to do with diagrams. I don't know why it's called the Diagram Prize. Oh, it's named after the Diagram Group. Okay, so it's a... a, Anyway. The Diagram Prize is a prize given out to the literary in the literary world for the oddest oddest book title of the year (laughs) okay and it goes back to 1978 they started giving this out to the to the book that just sounded the weirdest and probably was the weirdest i mean it's not just the title the title helps you understand what the book is so what kind of books and titles have won the Diagram Prize. Well, I don't have time to read them all. But let's go through some of these because this is, with every one of these, simply ask yourself, who authors this? Because a book is something that you generally are writing because you have some level of interest or passion in this topic. Not too many people are writing something they care nothing about or have never thought about before, right? This is something that is generally meaningful to you. Well, the first one, 1978, Proceedings of the Second International Workshop on Nude Mice. <laughs> that, that was an a- actual book. Um, the Joy of Chickens <laughs> was the winner in 1980. This one's horrible. This one is a horrible book title, the one in 1981. Last Chance at Love, Terminal Romances. That's horrible. I mean, I suppose if you have some sort of horrible terminal illness, you shouldn't be excluded from from love. It's just a, a deeply dark, depressing kind of... Yeah. Um, I don't even understand this one. Unsolved Problems of Modern Theory of Lengthwise Rolling. <laughs> anybody? Anybody know what that is? Um, the next one I understand. I just don't know why anybody would have written this book. The Book of Marmalade. Its antecedents, its history, and its role in the world today. Yep, the Book of Marmalade. <laughs> How about this one? Um, good luck if you want to try this. Maybe this book has applications, but Natural Bust Enlargement with Total Mind Power. How to use the other 90% of your mind to increase the size of your breasts. <laughs> I bet that was a good seller. I bet that one probably did okay. Although, who in the world would want to carry that up to the counter to purchase it? Maybe, you know, in a, in a time of self-checkouts, that would have probably done much, much better. Uh, lesbian sadomasochism safety manual. All right. Uh, here's one. Shouldn't be too difficult to... Yeah, I don't know if you'd need a book for this. How to avoid huge ships. Well, you see the huge ship coming at a great distance and you get out of the way. I don't know that you need a real book on that one. 1994 winner. Highlights in the history of concrete. (laughs) That would be 
That would be page turner, wouldn't it? That would be scintillating reading. The history of concrete. Um, um, let's see here. Developments in dairy cow breeding. New opportunities to widen the use of straw. <laughs> Um, uh, okay, again, I don't understand this one really at all. Butterworth's Corporate Manslaughter Service. What does that mean? What does that book even mean? Uh, this is a good one from 2002. Living with Crazy Buttocks. <laughs> I See, that I almost want to read just to know what that book could possibly be about. Uh, 2003, the winner, the big book of lesbian horse stories. I assume they're not suggesting that the horses are lesbian, although I don't know, but it's an interesting title. Uh, speaking of horses, the next year, the winner was bomb proof your horse. <laughs> uh, 2005, people who don't know they are dead, how they attach themselves to unsuspecting bystanders and what to do about it. Okay. 2007. Uh, here's some potentially good advice. It's a self-help book called If You Want Closure in Your Relationship, Start With Your Legs. <laughs> I, mean, I, I guess to the point, do you need a book to fill out the rest of the spaces in that discussion? I think they've pretty much given you the whole story right off the top. No? Uh, 2008, uh, this one, we're talking about the, the winners of the Diagram Award for the strangest book titles of the year. 2008, this is a page turner. The 2009 to 2014 World Outlook for 60 milligram containers of fromage frais. Mm-hmm. I, I suppose in the fromage frais industry, especially among those who prefer it in 60 milligram containers, that was a good one. Uh, all right. Uh, again, don't know who, well, I know who might want to read this, but I want to know who read it because I do not want to go to them. Managing a dental practice, the Genghis Khan way. <laughs> this next one, 2011, the single worst book title of all time. Now there was an explanation. Nonetheless, tell me you would not at least pick this up in a bookstore to look at this, which might mean it's the best book title. I'm not sure. 2011 winner, Cooking with Pooh. The the cook, the the author, his last name was Pooh. So it's not exactly what you think, but you would have picked that up if you were walking through a bookstore, for sure. Uh, 2012, Goblin Proofing One's Chicken Coop. That's good. Uh, number uh, 2013, this one could be useful. How to Poo on a Date. Hmm. Uh, 2015, Too Naked for the Nazis. Yeah, I could see that that would be interesting. Uh, 2018, The Joy of Water Boiling. Hmm. <laughs> and 2021, we don't have this year's winner yet, so the last winner that we have, I don't even know if I'm allowed to say this on the air, but I'll take my chances, is Superman Circumcised. <laughs> Again, <coughs> I think if you walked by that in a bookstore, you'd probably pick it up and take a look. I didn't even get to the runner-ups. There were runners-up, runners-up, pardon me. I didn't even get to the runners-up. There was a whole list. Maybe another day we'll just do the runners-up. They were just as good, let me tell you. Just as good. But yes, go, uh, go look it up. The Diagram Prize for Oddest 
title of the year. Your quiz question, not an odd title for this one, although it's an interesting name. On this day in 1947, people got a glimpse of the Spruce Goose for the very first time. What was the Spruce Goose? 905-645-3221 or star 9900. That'll get you Matt. Give him your answer. Give him your name. If you just want to text it to us, 905-645-3221. What was the Spruce Goose? Please include your first name so we know who sent it to us. Back with the answer and those who knew it right after this. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Quiz question tonight. On this day in 1947, people got a glimpse of the Spruce Goose for the first time. What was the Spruce Goose? The Spruce Goose was a, well, a project by Howard Hughes, who was a little a little different. And it was a giant wooden plane made out of spruce, hence the name, uh, that was the length of a football field. And it was supposed to be used in battle, although it never really turned out to be all that successful. So a, the Spruce Goose was a plane. Matt, did anyone know that tonight? Yes, a lot of people. Bear with me here. <laughs> Frank, Joe and Patricia, Mike, Sheila, June, Joe, Paul, Hugh, Rick, Steve, Jackie, Wayne, Demetrian, Maria, Ron, Dan, Pat, Andy, John, Mike, the geography teacher, Brandy, Cliff, George, Tony, Karen, Tom, Barry, and Derek. Wow. And I got last minute Bruce and Anna on text. So, uh, yes. Wow. Very impressive. Very impressive. Well done, everybody. We'll see how we do tomorrow night. We'll be back at 6 o'clock. There will be another quiz question. There will be lots more to do. Hope you have a wonderful night. We'll talk to you soon. And boom goes the dynamite. Want to hear more? Download the podcast on iTunes or Google Play and listen to The Scott Radley Show weeknights from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. Canada may be known for its landscapes and friendly people, but beneath the surface lies a darker side of crime, history, and the paranormal. Since 2017, the award-winning Dark Poutine podcast has explored the shadowy corners of the great white north and beyond, delivering chilling tales from a uniquely Canadian perspective. Hosted by Mike Brown and Matthew Stockton with over 300 episodes and fresh releases every Monday, Dark Poutine is your weekly ticket to the creepier side of Canada. Listen to Dark Poutine on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.